So what do you think? Do we uh, need an invisible Princess Alice sitting in the corner of the room watching over everything we do to make us behave? Um, the question of the morning, can I be good without a God concept, right? The, the question came to us actually uh, in a seminar that we were hosting this fall called Divided We Stand. And uh, during the Q&A time, that question was posed to our lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. A woman stood up and said, I'm an atheist. And I get told by people of faith all the time that as somebody who doesn't profess a faith in God, I cannot be a moral or an ethical person. And her question was very simple. Can I be a moral or ethical person without God? And uh, Jeff gave an answer that night with the, within the time constraints that he had. But we thought that's a worthwhile question for us to consider this morning. And to be honest, uh, the first time I heard the question, you know what I thought about? I thought about my neighbor, just a gem of a guy, retired guy. Um, I hope we've lived beside him for 13 years. I hope he lives forever and I hope he never moves. Um, but I came home one night. It was dark. It was late. Pull into the driveway and he's cleaning up his truck. He's obviously been working all day. He's pulling his work gloves off, and he's a mess, and he looks tired. And I asked him, I said, what's going on? And I said, what, what got you up working this late? And he said, well, I just helped my ex-wife move into her new apartment. Now, a little backstory. It had been a few weeks, maybe, maybe a couple months earlier, when he had discovered that his wife was uh, cheating on him with a mutual acquaintance. And right at that moment, the marriage um, was over. It wasn't the first time, and it was, it was, you know, it was tragic. It was too bad. The, the marriage ended, and he told her he wanted her out of the house. And this was the weekend that had been scheduled for her to move. And she was going to move into a new apartment with her new boyfriend. And the very weekend that she's scheduled to move into her apartment, her boyfriend has a massive heart attack. And he's hospitalized. He's incapacitated. And she's distraught, she's a wreck, she wants to be with him in the hospital or whatever. So she tells my neighbor, I just, I don't know if I can move this weekend given everything that's happened to my boyfriend. And my neighbor says to her, listen, this is like weeks after an affair is discovered. He said, listen, you go to the hospital, you be with your boyfriend. My friends and I will load up your stuff, we'll move it to your apartment, we'll get you settled in. And you know, you don't have to worry about it. Now he's telling me this story. And I just, I was shaking my head. I just looked down and I said, you, friend, are a way bigger person than me. I don't know that, that that's how I could have responded in your situation. And he kind of chuckled and he said, well, to be frank, he said, I wanted her out of my house. And so the sooner the better. But then he kind of got serious to be, you know what? He said, I, I don't have that many years left in front of me. And I'll be darned if I'm going to spend them in bitterness and anger, and holding grudges, and doing stuff like that. It happened. It's terrible. It's over. I'm going to forgive her, and I'm going to move on with my life, and I'm just going to live for better days. And I stood back, and I looked at this guy who honestly professes no faith of his own. And I just thought, you have responded to this whole situation a thousand times better than many Christians that I know. And so when I hear the question, can an atheist be a moral or an ethical person? To me, this image pops in my head and the answer is obvious. The answer is yes, of course. I mean, just look at Bill Gates and, and Mark Zuckerberg giving away billions of dollars 
um, of their own personal fortune, giving it all away to eradicate poverty. Or look at politicians at every level of government who have given their whole adult life to public service, to making their part of the world a better place. I'm not going to name any names so that we don't start any fights. Um, but just look at people like my neighbor and folks that you know, maybe you yourself, just people who are modeling these beautiful pictures of what it means to be a person of character and integrity, a, 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 you know, a family or a marriage or parenting that is uh, first class. Just anybody would want to be a, a family like that. People who are volunteering their time with the PTA or sponsoring kids or fostering kids or you know, big brother, big sister, just people doing incredible things without any faith motivation whatsoever. It happens all around us all the time. Actually, you know what's interesting? One of the people that I think about, I, I kind of frame this conversation, can be good without God. I frame the God part through the Christian tradition because that's the tradition that I'm a part of. And, uh, and my head goes to someone like Gandhi, right? Who was a Hindu, grew up in Hindu India. I don't know about the level of faith commitments. And I know everybody has their flaws. But here's a guy who took his legal training and turned it into political influence of the kind that people just dream about, fighting poverty, expanding women's rights, building bridges between the religious and ethnic groups in India, fighting against the policy of untouchability and bringing it to an end, and then leading this nonviolent protest against colonial Britain to free India. He's called the father of the nation, inspires human rights movements around the world, and doing it, from what I can tell, not out of any particular faith commitment. In fact, the interesting thing about Gandhi, speaking as a Christian, is that Gandhi's known, in part at least, for this uh, one thing that he said that's always stuck out with me. Gandhi once said this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It kind of exposes the other side of the conversation. Not only do we know people with no faith commitment who are really good people, we know people who profess a faith commitment who just aren't that good as people. And I mean, you start at the institutional level, right? We can all list the crimes of the church against humanity, the crusades and the inquisitions and the witch hunts and televangelist scandals and pedophile priests and complicity in slavery and the church's relationship to and treatment of the LGBT community, just so many ways in which the church has caused pain in the world. Um, a number of years ago, there was a study done interviewing 16 to 29-year-olds about what they think about the church, and the words that came back weren't flattering. It's hypocritical and pushy and anti-gay and sheltered and um, um, political and oppressive and patriarchal and anti-scientific and just all sorts of ugly stuff. And, and you don't need to hear about studies because you've experienced it around the dinner tables at your family reunions or in the comments section online. People who profess faith and then spew hate. People who mistreat folks that they disagree with in the name of Jesus. People who would stab you in the back and rip you off just to make a buck and there's just so many ways. I mean, it's not everybody by far, maybe not even the majority, but there are many times in which people who claim to be Christians are just not like their Christ. And I just want to say, if that's you, if you've ever been hurt by someone like that, who claims faith, if you've been hurt by me, right? it breaks my heart to think that's true. And, I, and I'm just sorry on behalf of the church that you've had to live through that at the hands of the church.
But it's enough to illustrate the fact that goodness and godness don't necessarily correlate. That the experience of goodness is basically available to anybody. In fact, we can do this little experiment right now to show that we all have access to the experience of goodness. Here's what, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Okay, I've got my watch on. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Here's what I want you to do if you're comfortable. I want you to turn to your neighbor and in one sentence, I want you to tell them how you define goodness. Okay, and then after 15 seconds, I'll call you back. So one sentence about how you define goodness. Go. Okay, okay. Let's bring it back. Uh, Now, um, I want everybody to yell out your answer to the screen. (laughs) You're all right. Yay. Uh, No, obviously, I I can't talk to you about what your answer is, but it wouldn't surprise me if the vast majority of us in the room defaulted to some kind of answer that sounded like either goodness is behaving in a way that doesn't hurt anybody else or goodness is behaving in a way that's directed towards loving other people. One of those two answers. And the reason it wouldn't surprise me is because at some very basic level, this kind of is the universal human instinct about goodness. Um, in the Christian tradition, it sounds like this, the teaching of Jesus. It says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the, the summary of the whole teaching of the Christian tradition about how to relate to the people around you. Do for other people what you wish they would do for you. But the interesting thing about this ethic, this golden rule is this. Nearly every faith tradition in the world and nearly every major faith tradition uh, in history has had some version of this ethic. Jesus didn't invent this idea. This in Hinduism and Buddhism, even Confucianism and Taoism predates Jesus by hundreds of years. It's found in Zoroastrianism and in Baha'i and in Islam. It's found in religions all over the world. Some version of Do things to other people that you would want them to do for you. Or don't do to anybody else what you would not want them to do for you. This is is kind of this instinctive human instinct towards what goodness is that exists in our humanity irrespective of our faith tradition. We all have this moral instinct towards a general definition of what it means to be good. How can that be? Well, in the Christian faith, the way we would explain it is this. That the Bible says that by virtue of our humanity, um, we have the imprint of God on the constitution of our lives. In the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it says this. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female He created them. In other words, every single human being that has ever lived bears the stamp of the divine. That's in your very humanity, regardless of your faith commitments, in your very humanity, you constitutionally reflect what God is like to the rest of the world. And and in the Christian tradition, we believe that God is good. You instinctively, partially reflect the goodness of God. Into the world. Now, not everybody's image of God reflecting his goodness is a high res digital image. For some of us, it's more of a pencil sketch or a caricature or a stick figure. But 
But in some way, we all reflect the goodness of God into the world. There's a, another passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says this, God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Nobody understands the fullness of what God is doing in the world. And yet one thing we know, God has put this instinct for the divine, this instinct for transcendence into our heart, into the core of who we are. We have this inner compass that points us towards the divine that among other things aligns us with this general idea that goodness is loving people or not hurting people or both or some combination or whatever. That we have it stamped on our humanity regardless of our faith commitments. Now, those of us who grew up in Western traditions, I think for us it goes deeper because we don't just have it in our humanity, we have it in our cultural history. We've been groomed by our culture to perceive goodness in a particular way. Um, Zoom back 2,000 years to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was built on a value system that was entirely constructed out of a grid of honor and shame. The most important thing you could do in the Roman Empire is not earn a lot of money or be really popular. The most important thing you could do with your life is accumulate honor is demonstrate your worthiness to the rest of society for them to pay you homage and for them to honor you for who you are. In, in a culture like that, actually, bragging is a virtue. We don't like bragging, but in that culture, bragging, if it's all about honor, bragging, Einstein said it's not bragging if you can do it, telling people what you've accomplished is cueing them to your level of honor and letting them know about their obligation to honor you. It's actually a virtue. Humility is not. Humility is a vice. In fact, Romans would not talk about humility. They would talk about humiliation. To be humiliated is to be put down. To have the indignity of, dem of being unable to demonstrate your worth to society. You're worthless. Well, fast forward 2,000 years back to our culture. Humility is a virtue and bragging is a vice. Right? If we wrote down the top 10 list of virtues that everybody should have, is probably almost everybody in the room would write humility. Why is that? What changed? Well, Macri University, the history department at Macri University, which is a publicly funded Australian university, wanted to get to the bottom of that question. They did this whole historical research project on the origins of humility as a cultural virtue. And the conclusion they arrived at, a secular university said, the difference is the Judeo-Christian tradition rooted in the teaching of Jesus. That what changed is you had somebody of the influence of Jesus come along and say, you know what, everybody, we should serve rather than being served. We should put ourselves beneath other people. We should think of other people first. We should, um, Jesus died on a cross. He gave up his life in the most shameful way imaginable for the benefit of people that weren't him. And in behaving that way, he sparks this entire movement that starts to write stuff like this in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And so here's the conclusion of John Dixon, who was a part of that Macquarie University study. He says this, Humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm in the ancient world. Today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are. Christian, atheist, Jedi, knight. If you were raised in the West, 
you are likely to think that honor-seeking is morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. That's the influence of a story whose impact can be felt regardless of whether its details are believed, a story about greatness that willingly went to a cross. The conclusion of Macri University is that we culturally have come to define goodness in a common way, in many ways that are rooted in the person of Jesus. Humility is not the only one, by the way. You have letters from the ancient world of a guy, emperor named Trajan, writing to his government officials saying, we better start some programs to care for the poor because these Christians are making us look bad. They're caring for our poor and people are starting to notice. Caring for the poor was a Christian cultural ideal. In the ancient world, many of the prayers that get excavated are curse prayers. Right? So you get this prayer from a guy named Docimet, Docimetus who's lost two gloves. And it says, Docimetus lost two gloves. May the person who stole his gloves lose their mind and lose their eyes at the place of the goddess's choosing. This must have been some nice gloves. <laughs> That's harsh. Jesus says, no, 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 don't hate your enemy, love them. Don't pray against your enemy, pray for them. And 2,000 years later, we generally agree that forgiveness is nobler than revenge, even when we can't do it. Caring for the sick is a Christian ideal. In the ancient world, when plague would hit a city, people would flee and the Christians would flock. They'd flood into the city to care for the sick and the dying. In fact, there's a dialect in India whose word for hospital, literally translated, means the white building next to the church. We've been influenced by the Judeo-Christian ideal. We've been formed in terms of how we think about what goodness is. We have the image of God stamped on the divine as this moral compass pointing us in the direction of love instead of hate. And all of us, therefore, are carried along on this current to some degree or another of striving to be good regardless of our faith commitments. Can an atheist be moral and ethical? Of course, the answer is yes. But that's not the question we put in the program for this morning. We, we pushed the question a little bit deeper. The question we wrote out was, can I be good without God? It's a little bit of a different question. Um, and the answer, quite frankly, biblically speaking, is no. There's an interesting story told in the life of Jesus. He's just finished teaching in this place. And he's going to move on. And somebody comes running up to him with a question. Mark chapter 10 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The guy's got this burning question. And he says, it's a question about goodness. What good things do I have to do in order to be noticed by God? Is essentially the question. And Jesus, I'm going to ask you, because you're a teacher, you can explain it to me, but you're a good teacher. You are acquainted with goodness. And Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Jesus says, don't call me good. There's only one person who's good, and that person is God. Jesus said that. The person who altered the trajectory of Western cultural ethics. So don't, don't call me good. 
Jesus who served the poor and embraced the forgotten and the marginalized, who cared for the sick, who welcomed the stranger. Jesus who taught us to love, not hate, to forgive instead of take revenge, to be generous instead of stingy. Jesus said, don't call me good. There's only one who's good, and that's God. In fact, in another one of the biographies of Jesus, he says, listen, I can't do anything. Only God can act in this good kind of way that you see. Jesus works with this paradigm that basically goes like this. If the world has been created by God, and I believe that it has, the Bible teaches that it has, I believe God used evolution to create the world, but I believe that the world was created by God. And if the God who created the world is a good God, which is what the Bible says, then all the goodness in the entire universe finds its origin in the person of God. All goodness originates with God and nowhere else. The Christian tradition picks up on this idea and begins to write things like this in Galatians chapter 5. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, all these good things. Basically, what the Scripture is saying is, that when you see those things in operation in a person's life, in operation in somebody's relationships, you see love in relationships and joy in relationship and peace and patience being exercised and kindness being extended and general goodness towards each other. When you see those things, what you are witnessing is the fruit of the Spirit, the effect or the result of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in that relationship. Wherever you see that, it is God at work. Whether you see that in people who are living faith commitments or people that aren't living faith commitments, wherever you see people being loving and joy-filled and peaceful and patient and kind with each other, you are seeing God at work in people's lives. In effect, I mean, the presumption of the question can I be good without God or can an atheist be moral and ethical? The presumption is the same. I want to be good. I want to be moral and ethical even outside of considering faith commitments. That's what I want for my life. And in the spirit of that kind of person, your spirit is open enough to what God's spirit wants for your life that you are actually in that moment cooperating with God to be loving and joy-filled and peaceful and patient and kind. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you want it or not, the what the Christian tradition says is that's where that goodness is coming from. It is coming as the life of God flows through you as you participate with God towards the goal of being good. All goodness comes from God. Which to me then, the question, can I be good without God? The answer that I would want to give is why would you want to be? If what you want in your life is goodness, you want to be a loving person and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle, filled with self-control. If that's what you want for your life, that's what God wants for your life. And, and that kind of stuff only flows through our lives in as much as we participate with God. So if that's what you want with your life, frankly, you believe in Jesus more than you think you do and you want what Jesus wants more than you think you do. So why not just journey with Jesus towards becoming the person you always wanted to be? Why be good without God? Why not instead embrace the goodness of God and allow that goodness of God to flow through you? Because truth be told, 
that's actually what we need. Because the flip side, so yes, we are people who are stamped with the divine image, with this moral compass that points us generally towards the goodness of God. But the flip side of who we are as human beings is that we're a broken version of that image. Right? Think back to the video, those kids, the second they thought no one was watching, they're all cheating in this game, right? And the psychologist says, you know, at some level, every one of us, if we could rob a bank and know we'd never get caught, we, we would probably do it. Every one of us has this streak in us to be flawed. In Romans chapter 3, it says this, as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. Jesus says no one's good. This is the flip side of that. No one's righteous. It's saying the same thing, not even one. That no one behaves righteously all the time. The righteous just means behaves rightly. Does the right thing 100% of the time. No one does that. No human being in history has ever done the right thing 100% of the time. Except in the Christian tradition, we believe Jesus did. But, um, and this isn't a mystery to figure out. Uh, A Catholic theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr um, said this, sin is the only empirically verifiable teaching of the church, right? All you need to do is look at your life. The Bible says that rightness is loving God and loving yourself and loving the people around you and loving the world. That's rightness. So, you know, you can leave God out of the question because we're talking about people who want to, you know, be right without God. Leave that to the side for a second. Have you loved yourself perfectly 100% of the time? Or do you find that there are times when you engage in self-destructive behavior? Whether mild, like having that midnight snack that you shouldn't have, or severe. Have you had self-destructive thoughts and attitudes that you've indulged? Have you ever behaved in a way that has shriveled your soul and made you less of a human? Have you loved the people around you 100% of the time? Parents, kids, friends, coworkers, siblings, spouses, Or have you treated people in a way that makes you sick about yourself on the inside? Have you loved the world 100% of the time the way you'd want to? Or there are times when you don't care about slavery. You don't care about the growing gap between the rich and the poor. You don't care about sex trafficking. Are there times when you've judged a homeless person without knowing their story? When you've harbored thoughts and attitudes towards another race or religion or group? that were nasty and destructive. We've all done it. We're all broken people. None of us is good all of the time. Um, And so we find ourselves as these conflicted beings where we have this stamp of the divine in the image of God and we want to follow that moral compass towards the goodness of God in love and not hurting people. And yet at the same time, we find ourselves unable to live that way all the time. Uh, Later on in that same book, it says this, Romans 7, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, in my sinful nature. In other words, good doesn't come from me. There's no good in me apart from what comes from God, is what he's saying. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. The writer, Paul, says we are kind of captive to this higher power that overrides our desire to follow the moral compass towards the good. We're captive to this power called sin. 
which drives our behavior in directions that we regret, directions that we don't want, and we do things that we don't want to do. And it's true of all of us. It's part of the human condition. About 100 years ago, the London Times had an essay writing contest, and the topic was, what's wrong with the world? A guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote in a two-word essay. It said, I am. I am. Here's the thing about the message of the Bible. Is that here's how that passage ends. Paul is writing about himself. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to sin and death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The whole point of the Christian message is this. Jesus is the one who perfectly bore the stamp of the divine, who is in absolutely the image of God, who shows us the way to be good with his very life. If you've ever been treated by somebody in a way that you thought was less than good, and as a person of faith, you're kind of wondering, is that what, is that Christian to behave that way? Just go back, read one of the biographies of Jesus and ask, would that guy have done that? And if the answer is no, that person is not following Jesus in that moment. Um, Jesus came to show us the good, but more deeply than that, Christianity believes that Jesus died on the cross in order to provide for us forgiveness for all the ways that we've drifted from the good that we desire with our heart. And he was raised from the dead three days later to fill us with the spirit of God that empowers us for a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and the self-control that allows us to override the power of sin in us to choose the good because of what Jesus has done. Because of the forgiveness he's brought and the change that he brings to the human life, he allows us, he inspires us, he conforms us to the good that God always dreamed for us. So here's the thing. Can an atheist be moral and ethical? Of course they can. And if you've ever been told otherwise by a person of faith, if you've ever been told that if you don't have faith, you're a terrible person, I am absolutely sorry. Jesus never did that. When you look at Jesus' encounters, the only time Jesus went out of his way to point out somebody's terribleness was when he was dealing with religious people who thought they were better than everybody else. You don't have to take that from religious people. You're not a terrible person. You're not as bad as you can possibly be. The problem is, and I apologize by the way that you've had to deal with that. That's not the Jesus way. The point is you're not as bad as you could possibly be. The point is that you're still not as good as you should probably be. And it's Jesus who's the one who deals with that. Can an atheist be moral and ethical? Yes. Can I be good, wholly good, completely good? Good in the way that I want to be good. Good in the way that Jesus was good. Good in the way that God wants me to be good. Can I do that without God? I can't. But thanks be to God that he sent Jesus so that those of us who put our faith in him, he in us, he can make it so that we can. Why don't we move forward in the conversation by talking about what it might look like to be good with God instead. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for every person who's come this morning and for the ways 
that they radiate you into the world for the ways that we can see who you are and what you're like through their life, through the image of God that's stamped on them. Thank you for giving us this internal moral compass that does turn our hearts towards the good. And Father, apologize. We apologize for the ways that we walk away from that. And would you give us, all of us, whether we've had a faith commitment or not, would you give all of us the courage and the humility to look to Jesus, to ask for forgiveness, to ask to be changed so that we can be the people you created us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.